Let us begin by reading 2 Peter 1, verse 12. Wherefore, I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them, and be established in present truth. The Bible clearly teaches that during the existence of our world with its inhabitants, God, at certain times, has given a present truth for a particular generation. If such present truth were heeded and obeyed, it meant their salvation. On the other hand, to neglect and disobey resulted in their destruction. There have always been some truths which are applicable in every age and are therefore to be preached and accepted by God's children at all times, such as love, hope, repentance, obedience, thankfulness, and praise. Such truths are always in season, but when God sees a special need for a particular generation, he gives a present truth that must be obeyed to obtain salvation. For example, in the days of Noah, God gave an urgent message of present truth. And God said unto Noah, The end of all flesh is come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make thee an ark of gopher wood. Genesis 6, 13 and 14. No doubt, many were lost in the flood who had a normal faith in God, but did not heed or obey the present truth of a coming flood. The prophet Jonah was given a present truth to deliver to the people living in the city of Nineveh. So Jonah arose and went into Nineveh, according to the word of the Lord. And Jonah began to enter into the city a day's journey. And he cried and said, Yet forty days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Jonah 3, 3 and 4. But notice how different was the response from that of the Antediluvians. So the people of Nineveh believed God and proclaimed a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest of them even to the least of them. And God saw their works, that they turned from their evil way. And God repented of his evil, that he had said that he would do unto them, and he did it not. Verses 5 to 10. John the Baptist was called by God to preach to the Jews that the Messiah had come to Israel as promised. But they rejected this present truth. For we read, He came unto his own, and his own received him not. John 1.11 The tragic results are recorded in the words of Christ. And when he was come near, he beheld the city and wept over it, saying, if thou had known, even thou, at least in this thy day, 
the things which belong unto thy peace. But now they are hid from thine eyes. Luke 19, 41 and 42. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. Matthew 23, 38. Today, in this end time, God has given a final present truth in his warning message as found in the book of Revelation 14, verses 9 to 10. Fear God and give glory to him, for the hour of his judgment is come, and worship him that made heaven and earth and the sea and the fountains of waters. Babylon is fallen, is fallen. If any man worship the beast and his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God. All our energies should now be focused on this present truth. Its acceptance or rejection means the difference between life or death. This is why Satan is putting forth tremendous efforts to ensnare God's remnant, to spend their precious time on needless concerns about past requirements of God that have nothing to do with God's end-time, present truth. Ellen White sums up this tragedy by stating, Our people need to understand the oracles of God. They need to have a systematic knowledge of the principles of revealed truth, which will fit them for what is coming upon the earth. And prevent them from being carried away by every wind of doctrine. Testimonies 5, page 273. It is thus that the devil is hoping to sidetrack the saints so that they will fail to give God's final warning message of present truth and lack the proper preparation for the coming crisis. Now before we enter into a study of God's Word regarding this subject, let us pray. O oh, loving Father, there is a growing number of sincere Christians of our day who believe that the Old Testament feast days are still to be observed. We need thy Holy Spirit to guide us in our search for present truth of this end time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. A careful study of God's Word will reveal that there are four different categories of law found in the Bible, namely the moral law, the ceremonial law, the civil law, and health laws. The scriptures teach that one of these laws was abolished when Jesus was crucified. As we read the following biblical texts, we will discover which of these laws was done away with at the cross. I'm reading Ephesians 2, verse 15. 
having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And then in Colossians 2.14, he gives some clues, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. Please take note that both these scriptures refer to laws which are called ordinances, which were abolished, nailed to the cross, and blotted out. This brings us to a question. Which of these four law categories deal with ordinances? We will let the Bible give the answer. We read of the Passover in Exodus 12, verse 14 and verse 43, And this day shall be unto you for a memorial, and ye shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generation. Ye shall keep it a feast by an ordinance forever. And the Lord said unto Moses and Aaron, This is the ordinance of the Passover. There shall no stranger eat thereof. Now in these verses, the Passover feast is called an ordinance. This feast was therefore to be done away with. The feast which followed the Passover was called the Feast of Unleavened Bread. In Exodus 12, <clears throat> verse 17, and chapter 13, verse 10, we are told, And ye shall observe the Feast of Unleavened Bread, for in this selfsame day I have brought your armies out of the land of Egypt. Therefore shall ye observe this day in your generation, by an ordinance forever. Thou shalt therefore keep this ordinance in its season from year to year. Since this Feast of Unleavened Bread is also called an ordinance, it too was to be done away with. Furthermore, we read in Second Chronicles 2 verse 4 of other ordinances involving certain Sabbaths, new moons, and solemn feasts of the Lord, which are also called ordinances. King Solomon is speaking, quote, Behold, I build an house to the name of the Lord my God, to dedicate it to him, and to burn before him sweet incense, and for the continual showbread, and for the burnt offerings morning and evenings, on the Sabbaths, and on the new moons, and on the solemn feasts of the Lord our God. This is an ordinance forever to Israel. Reading further on in Second Chronicles 2, 12, and 13, we are given the names of some of these solemn feast days. Then Solomon offered burnt offerings unto the Lord on the altar of the Lord, which he had built before the porch, even after a certain rate every day, offering according to the commandment of Moses on the Sabbaths and on the new moons 
and on the solemn feast three times in a year, even in the feast of unleavened bread, and in the feast of weeks, and in the feast of tabernacles. Now this scripture clearly identifies that the solemn feasts were called ordinances. Therefore, they were all to be nailed to the cross, having been abolished by the death of Christ. We must not overlook an additional fact that these feast days are not to be kept by today's Christians, for animal sacrifices were an integral part of these ceremonies, and such animal sacrifices pointed to the Lamb of God who was to die on Calvary. God has made it very clear that animal sacrifices and ordinances of feast days all ended when in the earthly sanctuary service the veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom. As you read in Matthew 27, verse 51, no Christian in their right mind will keep the ceremonial laws of the feasts and sacrifices in our day. The spirit of prophecy confirms that God will never again accept such worship, for it states, quote, the rending of the veil of the temple showed that the Jewish sacrifices and ordinances would no longer be received. Spiritual Gifts, Volume 1, page 170. The following quotation from Desire of Ages, page 165, also settles this fact once and for all. The entire plan of sacrificial worship was a foreshadowing of the Savior's death to redeem the world. There would be no efficacy of these offerings when the great event toward which they had pointed for ages was consummated. Since the whole ritual economy was symbolic of Christ, it had no value apart from him. When the Jews sealed their rejection of Christ by delivering him to death, they rejected all that gave significance to the temple and its services. Its sacredness had departed. It was doomed to destruction. From that day, sacrificial offerings and the services connected with them were meaningless. Shall I read that again? From that day, sacrificial offerings and the services connected with them were meaningless. Like the offerings of Cain, they did not express faith in the Savior. In putting Christ to death, the Jews virtually destroyed their temple. When Christ was crucified, the inner veil of the temple was rent in twain from top to bottom, signifying that the great final sacrifice had been made, and that the system of sacrificial offerings was forever at an end. To make this absolutely clear, 
we read further in letter 230 of 1907 that this not only included animal sacrifices, but the feast day ordinances which was connected with them. I quote, The people whom God had called to be the pillar and ground of the truth had become representatives of Satan. They were doing the work that he desired them to do, taking a course to misrepresent the character of God and cause the world to look upon him as a tyrant. The very priests who ministered in the temple had lost sight of the significance of the service they performed. They had ceased to look beyond the symbol to the things signified in presenting the sacrificial offerings, they were as actors in a play. And now note, the ordinances which God himself had appointed were made the means of blinding the mind and hardening the heart. God could do no more for them through these channels. The whole system must be swept away. Desire of Ages, page 36. And then we read in Signs of the Times, 7, 29, 1886. Hence, the ceremonial law ceased to be a force at the death of Christ. There are those who would still argue that Paul kept the feast days and taught that we must do likewise. However, the servant of the Lord clearly explains the nature of Paul's preaching to the Jews. For she states of Paul, and I quote, when he had given many discourses upon this subject, he testified that the Messiah had indeed come and then preached the simple gospel of Jesus Christ. This was the craft which Paul mentions, saying that he caught them with, with guile. He thus tried to allay prejudices and win souls to the truth. He refrained from urging upon the Jews the fact that the ceremonial laws were no longer of any force. He cautioned Timothy to remove any occasion for them to reject his labors. He complied with their rules and ordinances as far as was consistent with his mission to the Gentiles. He would not mislead the Jews nor practice deception upon them, but he waived his personal feelings for the truth's sake. Life Sketches of Paul, page 161. I continue to read. The ceremonial law was given by Christ even after it was no longer to be observed. And note these words. Paul presented it before the Jews in its true position and value, showing its place in the plan of redemption and its relation to the work of Christ. Patriarchs and Prophets, page 367. Then in the Review and Herald of 2.25.1896, we read, Circumcision and a strict observance to this ceremonial law had been the condition upon which the Gentiles 
could be admitted to the congregation of Israel. But these distinctions were abolished by the gospel. Ellen White further states of Christ, he has swept away every ceremony of the ancient type. He has given no liberty to restore these rites. Shall I read that again? He has given no liberty to restore these rites, and nothing could be more plain. It is no wonder that Paul tells us in Colossians 2.14 to 17 that these ceremonial feast days were all nailed to the cross, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of unholy day, or of the new moon, or of the Sabbath days, which are shadows of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Now, in this scripture, Paul is urging all scripture, all Christians not to be concerned with these past feast days, which were called holy days, for by his actual words in the original Greek as found in Strong's Concordance, number 1859, the word holy day means a festival or a solemn feast. And this does not have reference to the Sabbath of the fourth commandment, but to the yearly Sabbaths that were appointed on different days of the week each year. Paul spent much of his time in preaching to dispel the Jewish teaching that these solemn feasts were still to be continued. It is no wonder that Paul spoke in no uncertain words as we read in Galatians 4, 9 to 11. But now, after that ye have known God, or rather are known of God, how turn ye again to the weak and the beggarly elements, whereunto ye desire again to be in bondage? Ye observe days and months and times and years. I am afraid of you lest I have bestowed upon you labor in vain. Did you notice the words days, months, times, and years? This is referring to the ceremonial Sabbaths, the new moons, the festivals, and their appointed feasts. Paul is actually questioning if he had labored in vain to prove to the Christians that Christ had fulfilled all these ceremonies. Now let us look at Ephesians 2.15. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances. Concerning this verse, inspiration writes, there is a law which was abolished, which Christ took out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Paul calls it the law of commandments, 
contained in ordinances. This ceremonial law, given by God through Moses, with its sacrifices and ordinances, was to be binding upon the Hebrews until type met antitype in the death of Christ as the Lamb of God to take away the sin of the world. Then, all the sacrificial offerings and services were to be abolished. Paul and the other apostles labored to show this and resolutely withstood those Judaizing teachers who declared that Christians should observe the ceremonial law. Signs of the Times, September 4, 1884. In Galatians 5.14, Paul made it very clear that we are fallen from grace and removed from Christ if we obey these ordinances. Listen carefully. Christ has become of no effect unto you. Whosoever of you are justified by the law, ye are fallen from grace. I trust by now that you can see how serious it is to continue to observe these Jewish ceremonies that have met their fulfillment in Christ. Let me speak plainly. Those who persist in keeping the feast days are denying that Christ came and died at the appointed time in A.D. 27 and are not accepting what is given in God's word and the spirit of prophecy. How can any Seventh-day Adventist today who claims to have the faith of Jesus as you read in Revelation 14:12, deny our precious Savior by keeping feast days which by their very purpose showed that Christ was not yet come the first time. Let us take a closer look. The Passover with its feasts of unleavened bread was fulfilled, for we read in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Jesus, our Passover, was crucified for us. The unleavened bread was the offering of Christ's sinless life, for he said, I am the bread of life. The slain lamb, the unleavened bread, the sheaf of the first fruits represented our Savior's death, his sinless life, and resurrection. As Christians, we now celebrate the Lord's Supper, which Christ instituted in the place of the Passover. For Jesus said, As often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, Ye do show the Lord's death till he come. 1 Corinthians 11:26. In the Review and Herald of June 14, 1808, we read, In instituting the sacramental service to take the place of the Passover, Christ left for his church a memorial of his great sacrifice for man. This do, he said, in remembrance of me. This was the point of transition between two economies and their two great festivals. The one was to close forever. The other, 
which he had just established, was to take its place and to continue through all time as the memorial of his death. Again, I read in Review and Herald, May 31, 1898, this ordinance does not speak so largely to man's intellectual capacity as to his heart. His moral and spiritual nature needs it. If his disciples had not needed this, it would not have been left for them as Christ's last established ordinance in connection including the Last Supper. It was Christ's desire to leave to his disciples an ordinance that could do for them the very thing they needed that would serve to disentangle them from the rites and ceremonies which they had hitherto engaged in as essential and which the reception of the gospel made no longer of any force. To continue these rites would be an insult to Jehovah. Nothing could be spoken more clearly. Now let us consider the Feast of Weeks called the Pentecost. This was fulfilled 50 days later and was known as the celebration of the wheat harvest made possible by the early rains which provided the harvest at Pentecost. It was at this time that the Holy Spirit descended with mighty power upon the disciples. After Pentecost came the Feast of the Trumpets. This feast took place ten days before the Day of Atonement. This feast was also fulfilled in the ten years, remember in prophecy a day for a year, when according to Daniel 8.14 and Daniel 9.24-27 in the 2300-day prophecy, there was to be a time period of repentance before the anti-typical Day of Atonement, which began on October 22, 1844. This was the time when Jesus moved from the holy to the most holy place in the heavenly sanctuary above. History reveals that the greatest call to repentance, this side of the cross, took place in this 10-year period that preceded 1844, when the whole world was stirred by the Millerite movement in the early 1800s as predicted in the anti-typical blowing of the trumpet feast. So this feast day has also met its fulfillment. Next came the Day of Atonement. Now the question, has this been fulfilled? And for the answer, no, not yet. For it is in progress today. To keep this feast day is to deny that Christ is in the most holy making an atonement for our sins, which makes it impossible for us to benefit from his work in the heavenly sanctuary. This is not the time to be concerned with Jewish feast days of the past. Ellen White clearly emphasized that preparation for the atonement is the present truth of this hour. I quote, we are in the great day of atonement, 
and the sacred work of Christ for the people of God that is going on at the present time in the heavenly sanctuary should be our constant study. We should teach our children what the typical Day of Atonement signified and that it was a special season of great humiliation and confession of sins before God. The anti-typical Day of Atonement is to be of the same character. Everyone who teaches the truth by precept and example will give the trumpet a certain sound. You need ever to cultivate spirituality because it is not natural for you to be heavenly minded. The great work is before us of leading the people away from worldly custom and practice, up higher and higher to spirituality, piety, and earnest work for God. It is your work to proclaim the message of the third angel, to sound the last note of warning to the world. Testimony, Volume 5, page 520. Will our churches humble themselves before the Lord on this Day of Atonement? Will they put away the sins which defile their garments of character and separate them from God? The present is our day of visitation. Look not to a future more convenient season when the cross to be lifted will be less heavy, when the inclinations of the carnal heart will be subdued with less effort. Today, saith the Spirit of God, if ye will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Today, go about the work, else you may be one day too late. The impression that you have now may not be as strong tomorrow. Satan's snare may close about you. The candlestick may be moved out of its place and you left in darkness. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, saith the true witness. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Every warning, reproof, and entreaty in the word of God or through his delegated messengers is a knock at the door of the heart. It is the voice of Jesus speaking for entrance. With every knock unheeded, your determination to open becomes weaker and weaker. If the voice of Jesus is not heeded at once, it becomes confused in the mind with a multitude of other voices. The world's care and business engross the attention and conviction dies away. The heart becomes less impressible and lapses into a perilous unconsciousness of the shortness of time and of the great eternity beyond. The heavenly guest is standing at your door while you are piling up obstructions to bar his entrance. Jesus is knocking through the prosperity he gives you. He loads you with blessings to test your fidelity that they may flow out from you to others. Will you permit your selfishness to triumph? Will you squander God's talents and lose your soul through idolatrous love of the blessings 
He has given Review and Herald, November 2, 1886. This is our washing and ironing time, the time when we are to cleanse our robes of character in the blood of the Lamb. John says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. John 1, 29. Shall we not let our sins go? I entreat you, brethren and sisters, to labor earnestly to secure the crown of everlasting life. The reward will be worth the conflict, worth the effort. In the race in which we are running, everyone may receive the reward offered, a crown of everlasting life. I want this crown. I mean by God's help to have it. I mean to hold fast to the truth that I may see the King in his beauty. That beautiful appeal was found in the book, The Heavenly Places, page 356. Now before we close, let us consider the last feast of the Jewish year, which was called the Feast of the Tabernacles. Here we must again ask a very important question. Have the prophetic requirements of this Feast of the Tabernacles been fulfilled for God's people today? The answer, absolutely not. The purpose of this feast for Israel of old was to bring to memory how God had delivered them from the Egyptian bondage and by his loving care had protected and brought them to the promised land. This is why they were commanded to go to Jerusalem at the close of each Jewish year and abide in temporary shelters made from the branches of trees. During this feast, they were to celebrate that the Day of Atonement had been completed. All of their past sins had been carried away out of the sanctuary into the wilderness by the scapegoat. Now for us who are living in the end time, we cannot celebrate this Feast of Tabernacles, for our Day of Atonement is still in progress. Our past sins have not been blotted out of the heavenly sanctuary as of yet. Furthermore, we have not yet reached the Promised Land and entered into the heavenly New Jerusalem, where we shall abide in temporary homes until we are finally restored to the earth made new, where we shall build houses and inhabit them. Isaiah 65, verse 21. In reference to these facts, the spirit of prophecy encouraged the people of our God today to hold camp meetings, at which time is to be given in rehearsing how God has led in the development of the Adventist Church by delivering us from the false teachings of the papacy and apostate Protestantism and to be separate, a holy people, God's remnant. In addition, study should be given on what to expect as the end draws near and how to meet the final test, ready to see Jesus. By such suggestions, Ellen White is not telling us to keep the feast days, 
but that our camp meetings should become presentations filled with glorious truths of the second coming Savior that will bring to an end our wandering in this sin-cursed world. She further states in Review and Herald of January 9, 1883, the opinion is widely held that the sacrifices and offerings of the Hebrews possess no significance for Christians and can be of no interest to them. This opinion is without foundation. It is true that the ceremonies of the Mosaic law are not now to be observed, but when rightly understood, they are seen to be all aglow with sacred and important truths. These rites, appointed by Jehovah himself, were like so many beacons to light up the path of God's ancient people and to direct their minds to the great sacrifice to be offered for the sins of men. Viewed in the light of the cross, they contain most precious lessons for the people of God today. Review and Herald 1, 9, 1883. This is what Ellen White had in mind when she spoke of our camp meetings, found in the Review and Herald of November 17, 1885. Well would it be for us to have a Feast of Tabernacles, a joyous commemoration of the blessings of God to us as a people. As the children of Israel celebrated the deliverance that God wrought for their fathers and his miraculous preservation of them during their journeys from Egypt to the Promised Land, so should the people of God at the present time gratefully call to mind the various ways he has devised to bring them to remembrance the dependence upon God of those who first led out in this work. We should gratefully regard the old waymarks and refresh our souls with memories of the loving kindness of our gracious benefactor. Then, in Bible Echo of December 8, 1893, we read the following. The forces of the enemy are strengthening, and as a people, we are misrepresented. But shall we not gather our forces together and come up to the Feast of the Tabernacles? Let us not treat these matters as one of little importance, but let the army of the Lord be on the ground to represent the work and cause of God in Australia. Let no one plead in excuse at such a time. One of the reasons why we have appointed the camp meeting to be held at Melbourne is that we desire the people of the vicinity to become acquainted with our doctrines and works. We want them to know what we are and what we believe. Let everyone pray and make God his trust. Those who are barricaded with prejudice must hear the warning message of this time. We must find our way to the hearts of the people. Therefore, Come to the camp meeting, even though you have to make a sacrifice to do so, and the Lord will bless your efforts to honor his cause and advance his work, End quote. 
There is no doubt as to the conclusion as we read Manuscript Release, Volume 18, page 270. Will you listen to the voice of Christ? Will you break away from self and respond? We come, Lord, we come. With joy shall we draw water out of the well of salvation. Then shall your life henceforth be a continual feast of tabernacles, a continual thank offering for unnumbered and unmerited blessings. Finally, let us ever keep in mind, as I have read once before, I quote, The people whom God had called to be the pillar and ground of the truth had become representative of Satan. They were doing the work that he desired them to do, taking a course to misrepresent the character of God and cause the world to look upon them, him as a tyrant. The very priests who ministered in the temp temple had lost sight of the significance of the service they performed. They had ceased to look upon the symbol of the thing signified. In presenting the sacrificial offerings, they were as actors in a play. The ordinances which God himself had appointed were made the means of blinding the mind and hardening the heart. God could do no more for man through these channels. The whole system must be swept away. Desire of Ages, page 36. So, beloved, let us fill our minds with present truth. May we not be ensnared by the great deceiver and become so involved with past Old Testament feast days that we shall fail to meet heaven's requirements for the final atonement and to give the last warning message of present truth, the three angels' messages. Let us pray. Precious Father, we thank Thee for the Holy Spirit that has guided us in this presentation. May our minds be constantly focused on the three angels' messages, God's present truth, for this end time. And may, may we not be entangled with bygone feast days which were abolished at the cross. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I see a world of sorrow I see a world of pain No matter where I go But on that bright tomorrow God will remove the stain I will not fear For this I know
Why should my heart be troubled? Why should I ever feel? Why should I feel dismay? Jesus comes close beside me. I feel his presence near. Fear turns to faith, night into day. Just as long as he loves me, as long as he cares.
Amen. Amen.